Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate communities shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. We'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 9.30 or 11 right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're calling this year the Year of the Bible as we read and study through the Bible cover to cover. On August 25th, we'll kick off the New Testament along with home-based small groups who will study the weekly reading together. If you'd like more information about any of this, visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. This is from Mark 2, 13 through 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your spirit is here with us in this place. And I thank you that you have called each of us, whether our sickness and sin is obvious or not, it's there and you welcome us in in the midst of it and you you speak to it and you love us and commune with us and we so appreciate that lord help us to find value in others um, and in ourselves knowing how very much we're loved in your name jesus amen amen you all can have a seat good morning cornerstone it is so great uh, to get to be with you this is uh, my first time to Tulsa, actually. I, I am not from Atlanta originally. I grew up in Arkansas, which makes um, this being my first time to Tulsa even more sort of surprising and I think a sort of happy gift. I, uh, I did not exactly know what to expect, but I got um, to my hotel yesterday. Uh, Nina dropped me off, and I walked in to check into my room, and I heard the woman behind the counter say, y'all folks, and I immediately was like, oh, home. <laughs> Uh, so I have really loved every second of getting to be here um, with all of you and so thankful for John and what you all are doing. I um, have heard that you've been going through the Bible for the last year, which just like thrills me beyond uh, being able to tell you that a church would commit to having read the whole Bible together and studying as a community is such a beautiful way to start your life together. I'm so thankful to the Holy Spirit uh, via John to make that commitment for all of you and I think in particular given uh, where we sit now, being uh, in the Gospels, which are no doubt for most of us in the room probably the more familiar stories um, from all of those that you've been reading for the last uh, number of months. And uh, here's why it was a real gift to me as a, as a preacher and Bible teacher to know that you've been reading through the Bible and getting the Gospels because I happen to think that um, you are actually better positioned now to understand and hear and read the Gospels in the way that Mark and other Gospel writers really meant for them to be read, which is, of course, through the lens of this whole big story that's been going on a long time before Jesus ever arrives on the scene. Um, and Jesus is this sort of climatic moment, not sort of, he is a climatic moment in what has been this very long story, and the church, of course, being a continuation of that story. 
And that's helpful to know because otherwise it's tempting to sort of see that, you know, front heavy half of your Bible as just a sort of random preamble to the main event. You know, like, well, it's good to know some of the stories, I guess, about Jesus' ancestors, but like, really, do we need it? And I would submit to you that yes, the answer is yes, that you really, really do, that there is so much happening in that story before we get to Jesus that matters. For example, it was Jesus' Bible, your what we call Old Testament, was Jesus' scripture. It was the scripture, the script that he based his whole life and ministry on, it was how he understood himself. And that matters in how we understand Jesus. I remember learning for the first time that Jesus was a Jew. And um, I was too old to be learning that. And, it, like, of course, that's one of those things that you know, but you don't know really. And what difference does the Jewishness of Jesus or his history make? And the answer is uh, it makes a lot. And not just for how we understand Jesus, but how we understand this story, our story now, that we've been grafted into, that has a beginning and has a very particular end. So, for example, Revelation 22, where the Bible ends, and the story of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Without Genesis and without Ezekiel, that is a lovely but somewhat random story. But with Genesis and with Ezekiel, that story becomes the restoration of Eden. It's the end of exile. It's the homecoming of God. It is the event for which the people of God have been waiting and laboring and longing for millennia to then. And you see that. I think that's also true of the cross. You see it differently with that whole story that you've been reading now in mind. I think it's also true of the story that we just read, um, even in Mark's gospel. So what I want to do, before we jump into the story of Levi, um, because your invitation in reading the Bible gives me sort of a permission to do this, um, which is talk a little bit about um, the Old Testament story and Israel's story and how that shapes the way that we would read Levi's story, make my case, as it were. So Mark's gospel begins, if you were to back up, we're in chapter 2, but you back up a few verses. Mark's gospel begins not with a birth story like Matthew and Luke, not with this pre-existent logos or word like John, but Mark begins his gospel uh, with a quote from an Old Testament prophet. Isaiah is the prophet. And Isaiah's quote, if um, we'll go back and read it, but Isaiah's quote is the pronouncement, the announcement of the end of exile for Israel. Israel was, when Isaiah makes this announcement, in exile where? Do we remember? In Babylon. Um, they've been in captivity there, exiled out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's been ransacked, and the whole people of God, the unimaginable has happened. It was for Israel the end of the world. Israel finds themselves um, as exiles in Babylon under Babylonian rule. It was never supposed to happen, and yet it has. And now at the end of this exile, the prophet arises on the, emerges on the scene and speaks this word, this pronouncement, what he calls good news, evangelion, gospel, to the people of Israel, announcing to them the end of their exile. And he says it this way. If you have a Bible, you can look at the first few verses of Mark. He says, this is the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So immediately, we're being cued as Mark's readers 
to understand that there is a similarity, a connection between whatever was happening with Isaiah's gospel, his good news, and now this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, that Mark sees them somehow as the same. And so we are immediately positioned to understand ourselves as his readers and the, the audience to whom Mark was originally writing as exiles, as if we were receiving this gospel pronouncement for the first time. Except we're not ethnic Israel anymore. Mark's audience would have been early Christians, the church, and us. And we're not in Babylon anymore. Now where are we? In the first century, in the early church, we're in the Roman Empire. And the deliverer is who? Who's preparing? We're preparing the way for who? Well, in this way, we're the same. Because the one who's going to deliver Israel out of exile, according to Isaiah, is prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. In other words, Isaiah was saying, God is coming for you, Israel, to deliver you. And the reason that this matters to Mark is because Mark wants these early Christians who were experiencing intense persecution at the time that Mark wrote his gospel. They were under the threat of the Roman Empire, experiencing it firsthand and very literally, oppression. Mark is saying to his audience, prepare the way of the Lord. It is the end of your exile. God is coming to deliver you. And then at the end of that announcement, we see John the Baptist, and you think, so is John the Baptist the deliverer? And John says, almost immediately, so that you don't confuse him with the actual deliverer. He says, oh, no, 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 I'm just a forerunner. He who comes after me is greater than I. I'm not worthy to untie even the thong of his sandals. I'll baptize you with water. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so immediately, in a stroke of pure genius, <laughs> Mark has told you so many things. One is that you are exiles in need of deliverance. And if you find yourself there, take heart, because God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And the God of Sinai, who delivered Israel out of Egypt, is the same God who delivered us out of the exile, and the same God who will deliver you now, that he's at work where you are, and that that same God has now made himself known in Jesus Christ, and he never fails. So, right after we meet Jesus, in case you're not convinced of the significance still yet of Israel's story, Mark's going to, like, double down on the point. He tells you the first thing we know about Jesus is what? Not his childhood, not how he was born. What's the most significant, defining moment of Jesus' life? Baptism. So the first thing we see Jesus do is go down into the water, like who? Moses and the people of Israel also went down into the water, and we see the heavens being torn apart just like the waters of the Red Sea. And we know now, because we're readers of this Old Testament, we know the story of the Exodus, we know the story of the flood. When God's people come up and out of the water, it is a new day. Amen. It is a new beginning, according to this story of Israel. And so when Jesus comes up out of the water, the voice of God speaks over him, and we are cued to believe and know it is a new day. It is a new beginning. And if you're still not convinced, what's the very first thing that Jesus does after his baptism? Mark says, immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Where did Israel go after they came out of the Red Sea? Sinai and then into the wilderness. 
for 40 years. Did Jesus go for 40 years? No, thanks be to God, he only had to do 40 days. But he went for the same purpose, we're told. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days to contend with Satan, just as Israel did, to face temptation. But the big difference, just in the way that Eve did, to face temptation. But the big difference between Eve and Israel and Jesus is that Jesus wins. He doesn't fail. He comes through his time of wilderness and his temptation victorious. And the human wins, which is what we're meant to celebrate. Not just that he's God, but that he is very man and very God. And so if Jesus can go through that kind of wilderness temptation and emerge victorious, then praise be to God, so can we. He is going to deliver us. He is for us. And Jesus never fails. And as this victorious human, doing what we were not able to do on our own strength, Jesus then begins his ministry. And he starts doing things like healing the sick, curing the lame, casting out demons. And this matters. Please hear me. Because those are the things he does before we get to Levi. And they're all of the same type of thing. Jesus isn't just doing these things because he's a nice guy. Because he's Christian. And so you do nice things for people. You know, like heal them of their leprosy. <laughs> it was more than that. What were humans always meant to do? Think all the way back to the garden. You know it because you read it. What was our job? What did God make us for? Rule and tend the garden. Exercise power and dominion in a way that leads to flourishing, like in a garden. If you rule it right, what happens? Pfft. Flourishing. Fruit for everybody, all the way around. That's what power is supposed to look like in the hands of a human who's living as God intends for him, her to live. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing. Has Jesus wield his power? Does he go out and build a mighty army for himself? Does he go out and amass a giant palace or temple, a shrine to himself? No. Jesus uses his power, his victory, immediately to begin leveraging it for those who are in need of deliverance, setting right what sin had made wrong. So when you see Jesus heal, when you see Jesus cure and cast out demons, you need to know that 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 is an act of, those are examples of deliverance, so that when you get to Levi, you understand it to be the same sort of thing. This is a story about deliverance. Jesus setting sin in its place, making things right and as they should be. The question is how? Because Levi's story, it's different from the story of the paralytic or the leper. So we get to Levi. I've healed people. Jesus is doing all these great things. And then as he's leaving the Sea of Galilee, he comes upon this guy named Levi, who's a tax collector, sitting at a tax booth near the road where Jesus would have been walking. And Jesus does a very surprising thing. He doesn't pass by Levi. He walks up to him, and he says to him, gives, makes the surprising invitation for Levi to come and follow Jesus. And here's why that's a surprising invitation. Because Levi like all tax collectors, would not have been exactly disciple material. These were people, um, many believed to be beyond the pale of hope, people who actually had forsaken their religion and their own people. Um, tax collectors were a kind of social pariah. They were outcasts, and not in a way that like, makes you feel sorry for them, like a leper or someone who's sick, but like they chose it. They put themselves on the outside. 
um, by their allegiance and affiliation with Rome. So they were traitors, enemies, and some Pharisees believed, therefore ritually unclean. So here's how that worked. Uh, in Jesus' day, of course, the region of Judea in which Jesus lived and did his ministry is under the, um, the rule of Rome. And Rome's got to get its money, right? So we got an empire to run. And so how do we get our money? Taxes, all right? And so we're going to tax everybody. And here's, here's, here's what they did. This was very savvy. Rome knew that it's probably not a smart idea if we put Romans in Judea to collect taxes because that's only going to fuel tensions between Romans and Jews. So we need to get their own people to do it because then they'll just turn on each other. That would be better. So that's exactly what they did. They sold rights to collect taxes. And whoever was the highest bidder won the right, bought the right to collect taxes. And if you owned the right to collect taxes, you could inflate the rates and keep the profit for yourself. So whatever above the tax you were able to collect, you kept. Not hard to understand why these guys got a bad rap. It was a pretty nasty business. Um, they had, of course, and did often, um, bleed their people. And people rightly thought, yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't want any part of that. Those are not the kind of people I want to be around. Um, these are people who effectively valued self-preservation over every other allegiance. So if we're like, going to get right down to it, what was so bad about what they were doing? Well, they were selfish and they were greedy, in short. But what does that mean? Well, they valued self-preservation over every other loyalty to people or God or country. And they were colluding with an enemy in order to ensure that preservation and self-interest. So I'm going to take care of me, whatever I got to do to do it. And if that means I got to do a little side hustle with the Romans, then I guess so be it. But I'm going to take care of me. Now, here's what's so interesting about what Jesus does. Jesus walks over and he calls Levi, and everybody is aghast. Because, like, at this point, you know, including Mark's audience, that we would have been reading stories like, you know, Jesus going and healing the blind person, Jesus going and healing the paralytic, Jesus going and casting out demons, and everyone was like, yes, go, Jesus. Deliverance has come. And then we get to this story about Levi and Jesus going and calling him, and it's like a record scratch. Wait, no, 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 no deliverance for him. He is not someone who is in need of liberation and being delivered. He's the oppressor. Don't offer deliverance to Levi. So what is Jesus doing? I wonder if Jesus maybe knew that deep down Levi's sin wasn't all that different from a sin that maybe we're all guilty of from time to time. Because who in this room can't relate on some level to at least the temptation to self-preservation at all costs? Or at least self-preservation with compromises. You know what I mean? Just little ones little compromises every now and then, just little lies, or just 
things that maybe nobody has to know about. Or, yes, I'm Christian, but, you know, I'm also very cool, and so <laughs> reputation to maintain. You know, I'm also in my 20s, and I'm single, so, you know, give me a break. It's 2020, virtually, after all. We all have our version of a tax collector, too. You got yours. We don't hate tax collectors anymore. Um, we all probably have different people that we would feel similarly about. So here's an invitation. Um, maybe close your eyes or don't, but either way, imagine a person or group of people for whom it would be very hard for you to watch Jesus show mercy toward. They don't ask for forgiveness. Jesus just walks right up to them and says, you want to be a leader in the church? And you would think to yourself, no! Not him. Not her. Not that kind of a person. I know who mine is. I know my group of people and I know my person. Now I want you to imagine what might you have in common with that person? For some of us, this is something as easy or superficial as who a person votes for or what a person looks like. But for others of us, it's very real and much harder than that, more complicated than that. It's apparent. Someone who betrayed you. Spouse. So part of the exercise, I think, for Mark's audience, for Jesus' disciples on the day that he did this, and for us, is to do exactly that. Because I think, on some level, what Jesus was saying is, we hate him for making all of these compromises. We hate him for being a traitor. We hate him for selling out and colluding with the enemy. But is that really all that different from something that we're all guilty of on some level? Because I don't know what it's like to be the church in Tulsa. Maybe you all would say it's very different. But I sometimes wonder, I spend lots of days thinking, what is all that different about my life from the lives of my neighbors around me? who don't consider themselves to be followers of Jesus. Is my life really all that different than theirs? We sing different songs, we read different books, we show up in different places for a couple of hours on Sundays, but outside of that, is there all that much difference? And maybe you would say, yes, there is. I like to think increasingly that yes, there is. Thanks be to God. But the point remains, can I really not identify at all with Levi's struggle? Or is it a lot more like me than I maybe would like to admit? And in this way, let me tell you, this is what's brilliant about who Jesus is. Because do I believe with all of my heart that Jesus intended to deliver Levi? Yes. But like killing two birds with one stone, Jesus was going to deliver Levi and simultaneously all the people who thought that Levi ought not to have been delivered. That's what makes it so genius. 
what Jesus was saying then and now, I believe, to us, to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, is that spiritual blindness, the kind that would cause me or us to see so readily and easily someone else's sin, but not my own, that is itself a kind of oppression and even sickness. Do you see what I'm saying? If what we see when we look at each other are primarily the differences, the thing that make you very much unlike me, that make us very different, and not the ways in which we are the same, which let's be real, y'all, it's the struggle. That's what keeps us, that's what makes us human. That's what makes us the same. I think Jesus knew at the end of the day there isn't a whole lot of difference between a Pharisee, a disciple, and a tax collector. we all human. We're all struggling with the enemy. And the enemy's not Rome, and it's not Babylon. It's an enemy, a very real enemy with a capital E without, to be sure. But it's also the evil within who tempts me constantly with pride and greed and compromise. And the minute I forget that it is by grace alone and by God's mercy alone that I am able to be who I am, I have submitted myself to shackles. I have become enslaved to my own false sense of righteousness and security. And that's really brilliant. And I know it to be true. I've experienced it in my own life. There are a number of you, very likely, in this room who experience that kind of oppression. You feel yourself angry and bitter and frustrated, and you believe it to be someone else's or some other circumstance's fault. And please hear me. It probably is, or at least that's where it started. Levi's sin was real. Jesus knew it full well. He wasn't pretending that Levi hadn't done anything wrong. And there would be a reckoning for Levi, for sure. It's just clearly not the point. Because what had happened in everyone else's heart around Levi, Jesus was saying it's just as bad. Actually, the bitterness, the anger, the unforgiveness that then lives in my own heart as a result of someone else's sin is worse because I have enslaved myself. I have allowed someone else's sin to keep me captive to a hurting, to a pain, to anger and frustration that Jesus would set me free from. And y'all, this is not me preaching theoretically. I speak to you as she who knows. Forgiveness is not just something that we ought to do because we are Christian. Jesus said it is that that sets you free. It is deliverance to want for and hope for the Levi's of the world to be set free because if I can't hope it for them, I can't really embrace it for myself. I have not. And there's a freedom on offer for us, I believe, in that. Jesus says if we keep looking at Rome or keep looking at Babylon and hoping that if we just could annihilate them and knock everybody else, our tax collector, if we could just get rid of all the tax collectors... Then we would be who we're meant to be. We're never going to get rid of all the tax collectors. You're never going to get rid of all the traitors. You're never going to get rid of all the people who should be who they are, who they are not. 
You're never going to get rid of them. You can't run from them or be mad at them all your life because you're the one who suffers. You hurt. And this kingdom that we're a part of suffers and hurts in turn. Our deliverance is not just a one-time thing that Jesus did on the cross. It is available to me every time I have internalized hurt and pain and am in bondage to it. I get to appeal to that same cross and say, to the God of Sinai, our deliverer God, the great I am, and Jesus Christ, the risen king who defeated death so that I could defeat my own unforgiveness and pain and bitterness and anger and hurt. That's the gospel for you. Jesus then looks at all these Pharisees who are snarky and frustrated about Jesus having extended this to Levi, and he says this really beautiful thing. He said, those who are well are not in need of a doctor. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. It is your pain, your brokenness, the thing in you that's not as it should be, that creates an opportunity for Jesus to be with you. Does that make sense? And if you can't see it or don't know it on a daily basis, what's not as it should be here, then what Jesus is saying is what he hears you saying is, I don't need you. I'm good. I'm well. You go tend to the sick. And that's really powerful for me. That's really liberating to think that the thing that in me that is not as it should be is the thing that facilitates, creates closeness and intimacy with Jesus. And if I were to say, I am not a sinner, that I am effectively saying, I do not need you, Lord. And God have mercy. It's not true. Do I believe that Jesus came to deliver Levi? Yes. I also came, I believe that Jesus on this particular day wanted everyone around him to know that we are all Levi's. And that he loves us the same. And that if it was you sitting at that tax collector's booth, he would ri- walk right up to you and say, do you want to be a leader in my church? How about I make you a leader in my church and you can author a gospel? How about we do that? That's the kind of deliverer he is. So if you would hope for, long for, and need that kind of freedom, then there's an invitation. So here's what I would submit that we do. I'm going to be quiet for a minute. And I would like for you to call to mind your tax collector again. And with Jesus' invitation in mind, I would like you to hold that person or persons in your mind and say... Lord, heal our pain. Lord, heal our pain. Heal our sin. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I pray now that in the name of Jesus that you would know that you are free, that you would take hold of freedom that has been offered to you, extended to you, 
by this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to receive it. Set us free, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.